Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon is entitled, I Sought for a Man, and was preached in 1994 by Reverend Dan Stetler at the Inner Church Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio. I trust you will enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles and would care to follow with me, I would invite your attention to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. I want to begin reading at verse 1 and we'll read most of this chapter if you would bear with me. In this chapter we see several visions that Ezekiel has. I must be honest tonight and say Ezekiel's not one of my favorite books of the Bible. There are many parts of it that simply go beyond the reach of my very finite understanding. However, this particular chapter is very clear, as are several others. And so I would like to read tonight, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now, thou son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. Then say thou, Thus saith the Lord God, The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it that her time may come, and maketh idols, against, uh, maketh idols against herself to defile herself. Thou art become guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed, and hast defiled thyself in thine idols which thou hast made. And thou hast caused thy days to draw near, and art come even unto thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking to all countries." Those that be near and those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which are infamous and much vexed. Behold the princes of Israel, every one, every one were in thee to, to their power to shed blood. In thee have they set light by, by father and mother. In the midst of thee have they dwelt by oppression with the stranger. In thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbaths. In thee are men that carry tales to shed blood. In thee they eat upon the mountains. In the midst of thee they commit lewdness. In thee have they discovered their father's nakedness. In thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another, with, and another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increased, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbor by extortion, and hast forgotten me, saith the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I have smitten thine hand at thy dishonest gain which thou hast made, and at thy blood which, thou, which hath been in the midst of thee. Can thine heart endure, or can thy hand be strong in the day that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. And I will scatter thee among the heathen and disperse thee in the countries and will consume thy filthiness out of thee. And thou shalt take thine inheritance and thou shalt take thine inheritance in thyself in the sight of the heathen and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. I'd like to move down to verse 23. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art a land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. 
There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, uh, in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening for prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God when the Lord hath not spoken. And the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them, and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their head, saith the Lord God. In this chapter, we have the chronology of the death of a nation. Ezekiel is writing from the perspective of captivity, and he's giving the reasons that God has brought his unique, his devastating, his powerful judgment upon the people of Israel. He's pointing out to them the things that led from the place of high honor, being a peculiar treasure of Almighty God, to the place where they're cast out among the nations of the earth, where their name is drug in the mud, where they're scorned and scoffed at, where men are, are amazed at what God has done to them. He gives them specific He gives them specific statements as to why they have gotten to this place. I want to just look briefly at the first part of the chapter where he gives them the individual problems. He talks to them in verses 3 and 4 about two things, shedding innocent blood and idolatry. As a matter of fact, in this one chapter, he makes eight references to the shedding of innocent blood. When we go back to the story of Manasseh in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, we read there a story of a man who gave himself to serve idols, who moved beyond the abomination of the heathen that had gone before him. And he made his sons and daughters to, the fa to pass through the fire in the valley of, of Hinnom. And he, he sacrificed in ways that are too hideous to describe tonight. And God denounces that kind of treatment of innocent life and the shedding of innocent blood. In verse 6, he talks about the governmental failures, the princes were, were abandoned in their, in their willingness to shed blood and steal and rob. He describes them as being like ravening wolves that have overtaken the prey. In verse 7, he talks about the breakdown of the family and the social structure. He talks about how the father and mother are lightly esteemed and how the fatherless and the stranger are mistreated in the midst of this society. In verse 8, he talks about the fall spiritually. Holy things are no longer holy. In fact, they're, they're despised. And, and the, the word he uses to describe the circumstances is, you have profaned my name. You've profaned my Sabbath. In verses 9 to 11, he talks about the moral failure. I don't even want to go in tonight to the description of the immorality that was going on in this land. 
But it's little wonder that after he gets down to verse 12 and talks about their greed, he launches into a tirade. Maybe tirade is too strong. He launches into a description of the judgment that has come against them. He says, your hands that have been quick to get illegal and immoral gain, can your hands work when my judgment comes against you? You've been, you flaunted my name. You flaunted my laws. You've defiled my commandments. Can you stand when I bring judgment? The verses that I didn't read in this chapter describe God burning these people in the fire and separating them and melting them as he would the precious metals that are in the earth. In the latter part of this chapter, the Lord tells us not only what has happened, but why it has happened. He begins by saying the decline has begun in the realm of the spiritual. The first failure that he describes in verse 25 is a prophetic failure. He says your prophets, your prophets have let you down. Your prophets have prophesied things and said thus saith the Lord when the Lord didn't say any such thing. He goes on to the priest. And the priests were the ones who carried out the daily acts of worship. And he says, your priests have violated my law. They have profaned mine holy things. They've made no difference between the holy and the profane. They've made no difference between the unclean and the clean. So in the practical everyday affairs of worship, there was a tragic breakdown. He talks in verse 27 about the failure of the princes and the government. And again, I say, he mentions twice here, they're like ravening wolves coming upon the prey. The people are simply an object that they use to get gain, to get illegal, immoral gain. Then he turns around to say the prophets come and daub them with untempered mortar. And they say, oh, God has said this, and God has said that. God didn't say any of it. Is it any wonder that in verse 29 he says the people have begun to do thus and so. The people have lived and robbed and oppressed and vexed and the stranger is not safe among them. It's obvious that this was a nation whose fabric had begun to become to completely come apart. It's obvious that this nation was a nation of people who had lost their sense of moral direction. This was a nation that from top to bottom was without a rudder, without a sail, without a purpose, without a direction, without a guide. And the end result was that judgment came. There are three things that I am particularly interested in in this chapter. First of all, I'm interested in the conditions that existed here because I'm convinced tonight that we face similar circumstances in our day. Our brother who spoke earlier gave you some pattern of that. In fact, we're going to say some of the same things. It must be that the Lord would like for us to hear some of those things tonight. But this nation is a tragic example of what happens when religion begins to decay, when government becomes defiled, when the priests no longer perform the function that God has given them. The fabric of a nation begins to rip and tear. The societal structure begins to give way under the weight of immorality and vice and perversion and pollution. If you read the last part of 2 Kings and the last part of 2 Chronicles, it's enough to break your heart 
A nation that one time had the glory of God's presence. A nation that one time was led by day by a pillar of cloud and led by night by a pillar of fire. A nation in whose midst had been erected a temple in Solomon's day and the glory of God settled upon it in such mighty visitation that the priests couldn't get in. A nation that had been the wonder of the world a nation who, when they were coming out of the wilderness after 40 years of fruitless wandering and began to cross the Jordan and enter into the land, literally sent shockwaves throughout all of the nations that faced them. They were a nation of slaves and had been that for almost 400 years. Yet God turned them into a fighting machine that conquered nation after nation after nation. When walls were too high, God shook them down. When gates were locked, God opened them. When there wasn't any might or strength or power, when there wasn't any strategy of war, God was their leader. God was their captain. The angel of the Lord went before them. And I have to stop and ask myself, how in the wide world did they ever come to that place? This place, I should say, where now they're captives in a far and distant land. The enemies of the Lord have come and laid siege against the city. The results of that siege have been hideous. They've driven people to, to inhuman extremes. And finally, the walls have fallen and the gates have caved in and the armies have invaded and the buildings have been destroyed and the temple is wrecked and the gates are burned with fire and they uproot everybody that's anybody and carry them off hundreds of miles to Babylon. And into their place, they move other people of other tongues and other languages. And now Ezekiel's writing. He points out the reasons why they're where they are. He points out, secondly, that these things inevitably and invariably position a person in direct alignment for the judgment of God. They always do. There is no escape. There is no other alternative. This kind of living brings God's judgment, period. It always happens. But I'm so happy that this chapter contains one more thing. Oh, it's a negative. As, as everything else in this chapter is. But this negative has a positive slant to it. For at the end of this chapter, the Lord makes a statement when he says, in the midst of all of this moral decay, in the midst of this societal evolution that has brought it from the heights of splendor and joy and majesty to the depths of despair and heartache and grief and vice and immorality and corruption, in the midst of that, I sought for a man to stand in the gap to make up the hedge, but I didn't find any. Do I need to tell you tonight that we live in a nation that is literally coming apart at the seams? Do I need to tell you tonight why we have to warn you about the nighttime hours of Dayton, Ohio? I live in this area. I read what happens in Dayton. And thus far this year in Dayton, we've had more murders than in the last several years. Our schools have become places where kids plant bombs in trash cans and carry 9mm semi-automatics under their jackets. Places where drugs flow like water and immorality is the status symbol of the day. And yet, you don't have to be a very perceptive analyst of society to look behind those things and see that we've got problems that are a whole lot more serious than that. 
there are some things that really trouble me. First and foremost, I guess, is the leadership of our nation. I was growing up in the 60s. I remember the 60s radicals that threw desks out the window and burned college dormitories and, and, and other college administration buildings and various other facilities on college campuses. I remember when they, when they said, do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. I remember the, the, the freedom of sexuality revolution. I remember those changes. I remember driving up and down Calhoun Street in Cincinnati near the University of Cincinnati and seeing places with strange names like Shaker Plain, various other things. Seeing young people, young men with long, long hair and stringy, straggly, uh, stringy, straggly attire and holes in the knees of their blue jeans and girls of similar likeness. Some people said, well, it'll come and it'll go. It's kids. They do it and then they forget it and they go on. But the tragedy is that in the midst of that kind of societal upheaval, there were some things etched upon our society that we have not walked away from. Because those kids did grow up and they did cut their hair and they did get rid of their holy blue jeans and they put on suits and they put on ties and they got slicked up and paid who knows how many hundred dollars to get their hair done. And then they were elected president and vice president and congressman and senator of the United States of America. They took their places in our colleges and universities. They took our, their places on Wall Street. They took our, their places in the, in the governmental affairs of various states and localities. And we're today, we're tonight seeing the result of that kind of thing. It troubles me not only that we have a president who lives by the value system of the now generation. It troubles me that we, we have leaders in our Congress and in our Senate who've lost their sense of moral direction, who's lost their sense of rightness and wrongness, who are far more interested in getting reelected than they are in doing the right thing morally. It disturbs me. It disturbs me when our Surgeon General stands up and suggests that we need to teach young people things that will facilitate immoral lifestyles rather than teaching them that holiness and purity is the way to live. It troubles me that as we have a new member elected or placed upon the Supreme Court of the United States to serve for life, we're going to have people who reflect values and philosophies and ideals that know nothing of any connection to this book whatsoever. That troubles me. It troubles me when I look away from government, when I look at, at the academic circles. I'm troubled to think that all across our nation tonight, God, God is absolutely forced out of academic life right here in the city of Dayton at Wright State University. A biology teacher was teaching a class in biology and he talked about creation and he was dismissed in the bastions of educational and intellectual freedom. <laughs> creation was too dangerous to tolerate so we had to dismiss him. Troubled about that. I'm troubled about our federal court system. I'm troubled about the fact that men and women are being placed in strategic places 
to legislate the moral course of our nation, to legislate our value systems. And you and I can't touch them with the ballot box. There's not a thing in the world you can do about it. They're there for as long as they want to stay. That troubles me. Troubles me what's happening in our families. While we're here in the IH convention, many, 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 the vast majority of our families are intact. I see little children running around. I look at these young people. These, these lights kind of light up their countenance, don't they? I looked into the faces of those young people as they sang tonight, and I thought how different, how different they look from the crowd streaming out of the average high school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. How different they look from the young people strolling the corridors of the mall on a Friday evening. We sit here in the confines of the Dayton Convention Center and we have some values intact and thank God for every one of them. But surely you understand tonight that you don't have to take too many steps outside the door of this convention center or outside the door of your church or outside the door of your home until you run head on into the breakdown of our families. The move, new family moves in next door to you. You ask the little girl when she comes over to meet your daughter what her mommy's name is. And she says, oh, my mommy doesn't live with us. Susie lives with us. Oh, Susie, well, who's Susie? Well, Susie's her mom. Oh, and it begins to dawn on you that you're getting a quick case in 20th century family reality. The little kids that come to Sunday school, you know, we, we argue and fret and carry on about how we're going to deal with so many divorced people and remarried people in our society. But you know, little kids that come into Sunday school, they don't know who their daddy is sometimes, let alone how many times mama's been divorced and remarried. I was driving a little Ford Pinto station wagon home from vacation Bible school. Had 18 kids in it. That's a bunch. And I was trying to keep the car on the road. I was trying to keep my mind sane. And all of a sudden, I began to hear a conversation going on behind me. And as I listened, my heart ached. My heart ached. We had an hour a day, an hour and a half a day, five days out of that week with those little kids. But God in heaven knows it's going to take a whole lot more than that to do, do repair to the damage done in those children's life. I'm troubled about what's happening in our families. I'm troubled about what our kids are learning in school. Our brother talked about not leaving your children in Egypt. I'm so thankful that my father, before, before the days when Christian education was popular, before other people seemed to recognize the need, the necessity, my father saw that. And even though I'm 42 years of age, I never attended a public school one day in my life. But do you know the first school I went to closed for lack of interest? There just weren't enough people interested. But we're quickly raising a generation that goes to a school where God has been severely shut out of doors. Before that, they went to daycare centers to get federal funds so they can't say anything about Jesus there. 
Mom and dad are too busy working two jobs to buy that boat Brother Smool was talking about and to keep the motor home rolling and to have the fantastic vacation. They're so busy that Johnny and Susie and whoever else there is in the home is coming and going as they please. We call them latchkey kids. Mom and dad are shocked and embarrassed when Susie comes up pregnant at 13 and a half. But really they set the stage they turned on the lights. They made facilities and they shouldn't be surprised what happened. We're living in a society that's literally coming apart at the seams. As a matter of fact, as I read Ezekiel, I'm amazed that from top to bottom, God is saying to Israel, you've got problems at every level of your society. And when I look at our society, I think, oh God, we've got problems at every level. There's not one bright spot in that spectrum. Ezekiel's second statement was, this brings judgment. Look at verse 4. Verses 4 and 5. Thou art become guilty in thy blood. And because of this, thou hast caused thy days to draw near. And thy years to draw near. Those that are near and those that are far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous and much vexed. The Lord said, you by your actions have brought ye near your day of reckoning, your day of judgment. The years of your bondage and captivity have come because of the way you have lived. The Lord goes into the tirade against all of the sins of these people and then he bursts back into a pronouncement of judgment in verse 13 and it runs all the way to verse 32 verse 22 rather and the Lord says you won't be able to stand you will not be able to stand I was reading over in 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 12 to 15 Manasseh has been the king and God, God has striven with Manasseh. God has sent prophets and Manasseh would not listen. And God burst forth to say, I'm going to bring judgment upon you till whosoever shall hear of it, his ears shall tingle. 2 Kings 21, 12. Verse 13, he says, I'll stretch, up, stretch a, a, a plumb line, a plummet over you, the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'll measure you. And then I'll wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish and I'll turn it upside down. Verse 14, I will forsake the remnant of my people and deliver them under the hand of their enemies. God was saying, when you live this way, judgment is the inevitable result. I confess to you tonight that that's frightening to me. Because when I look realistically at where we are and where we've been, I see judgment on our horizon. When I look honestly at society, I think we cannot go on this way without inviting. We are already inviting the judgment of God down upon our heads. Did you know that the United States of America has within the last month and a half thrown open its doors to those around the world who would consider themselves mistreated and persecuted because of their sexual preference and we have opened ourselves up to become a haven to people like that from all over this world 
I would remind you tonight that two of the most stinging examples of God's judgment to be found anywhere in the recorded record of human history are found, first of all, against the sin of Sodom and the sin of Gomorrah. God literally scorched the earth and left to this very day a new testimony to his sovereign wrath against that kind of living. God loves people individually, but he hates that kind of sin. And when we begin to flaunt it and pander it, when we begin to condone it and invite it and welcome it, when we throw open our doors, we're, we're spitting in the face of Almighty God. That troubles me. The second sin that was so obnoxious to God was the sin of the shedding of innocent blood. I read with interest, I read with interest what God has to say about Manasseh. When you look at the, when you look at the record in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, God says, my judgment has come as a direct result of the sins of Manasseh. He filled the city of Jerusalem with innocent blood and that sin God would not pardon. Now the ironic thing about it is the book of Chronicles tells us that in the latter years of his life Manasseh was carried away captive and when he got in the dungeon and when his eyes were put out and when his sons were slain he began to humble himself and seek God and there is one of the most incredible stories of grace to be found anywhere in the Bible. For God forgave him and God restored him. But I want you to know that Manasseh had crossed some lines of divine judgment that long after he was dead, in spite of his personal forgiveness, God's judgment had come against that nation. I don't need to tell you tonight that when our present president was elected, he quickly by presidential edict reinstated abortion in several areas that had been previously prohibited. He's pressed to promote the sale and the, the commercializing of the byproducts of, of abortion. That is the selling of parts. Until we literally begin to make money and do business off of dead babies. I don't know what that does to you, but that troubles me. That troubles me. We cannot live that way. We cannot go that way. We cannot do these things without aligning our souls in direct line of fire for God's eternal wrath. If we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat history. And God has said to us in no uncertain terms, there's the scorched earth of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look and remember. And don't go that way. God has etched on the pages of Old Testament history the detailed blow-by-blow -blow chronology of Israel's sin and decline, its captivity, its carrying away. And God says, don't live that way. Look at them and remember. Now, my friend, we can stick our head in the sand if we want to. We can act like there will be a tomorrow if we want to. But I want you to know something. Down this road we are on, down this road we are on, there is judgment from God himself and we will not be an exception. History is littered with the wreckages of civilizations 
that have thumbed their nose at God and taken their own way and ignored what he has said. It's filled with the wreckages. We come in our intelligence and our capabilities and our high level of civilization and our great degrees of technology and all of the rest and we think somehow we're going to do an end run around God. Friend, God's too big. There are no end runs. There's no place to run. God's judgment comes on sin. If Ezekiel says anything, he says if you travel this road, there's judgment down that road. But I'm so happy tonight that this story doesn't end here. You say, well, there's not much bright in that chapter. No, there's not. But you know, as I have sought God, you see, my hair may be white tonight, but I've got a little red-headed girl that just turned three. And when I looked into those little blue eyes, <laughs> look at those curly little red, blonde red locks, something in my heart cries out, oh God, oh God. Oh, God, what about my children? What about my children? And so as I've been coming up toward preaching at this convention, I've been trying to pray and trying to read and trying to study and trying to find the mind of the Lord. And God has been talking to me. And I first began to read and study in the life of, of Josiah. I guess one of the things that attracted me about Josiah was that Josiah was a man who found himself in the looming shadow of divine judgment. Manasseh's sin had already come and gone. The destiny was sealed. When the, prince, when the, when the king sent the prophet and the high priest to hold the prophetess to find out what God said, his first word was, judgment will come. But living there under the shadow of impending judgment, with the dark clouds billowing all overhead, we get a shaft of gold and sunlight that breaks into the life of King Josiah. For God says, I will send judgment, but because you rent your clothes, because you humbled your heart, because you wept, because you prayed, I will not send judgment in your day. And I confess to you tonight that with four children, and with a heart for young people, I teach a class of homiletic students. In fact, they're evaluating me tonight. <laughs> I've been evaluating them all semester, and now they're going to evaluate me. But as I look into the faces of those young people, as I look into the faces of my own children, as we kneel together to pray in family prayer, I confess that sometimes there's something that wells up until it nearly chokes me to say, oh God, oh God, let me be a Josiah. Let me be a Josiah for my day, for my kids, for my students, for my people. And so I began to study. <laughs> and I read Ezekiel chapter 22. I was led to Ezekiel chapter 22 by the knowledge of verse 30. I sought for a man. And when I found that verse and began to put it in context, it suddenly dawned on me, hey, hey, there's a truth there that I desperately need. A truth there that's, that's awesome in its implications. For you see, God is giving us a, a glimpse from His perspective of how they got to where they are and how they decayed and how they came apart of the scene. But he also gives us a glimpse of his working while they were doing that. 
And God says to them, while you were going after idols and shedding innocent blood and living like there was no tomorrow, while the prophets were pushed to the back burner and forgotten, while all of that was going on, I was going up and down the roads of your country and the streets of your villages. I was stopping in homes. I was stopping by your places of worship. I was seeking for a man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. And why was he doing that? Well, he said, I was doing that that I might not destroy this nation. All of a sudden, the light began to come on for me. And I began to say, Lord, now, does that mean what I think it means? And I began to look at what, er, what, what, what has happened elsewhere in Scripture. I began to ask myself, have conditions ever been like this before? And as a matter of fact, they have. And as I began to look, I began to ask myself some other questions. I began to say, when was God ever intimidated by evil? When do we find God wringing his hands and saying, oh, what am I going to do? Sin is just out of hand. These people have gone wild. What am I going to do? Things are running out of control. The devil's about to grab the power from me. Why? You look in vain anywhere in Scripture to find anything that even remotely resembles that. Oh, yes, we do see God grieving. We do see God grieving. It's interesting. As, as we look through the pages of Scripture, we see God grieving. But then we see God doing what he has to do. For example, you look in the life of Noah. And the thoughts, every thought and imagination of men and women's hearts was only evil continually. As a matter of fact, God could only find one man and his immediate family in the entire world, the entire population of the world, who even came close to serving God. God didn't wring his hands and cry. He said, Noah, build a boat. Noah, build a boat to the saving of your house. And Noah began to work. And for about the next hundred years, he began to preach while he worked. And the people laughed and the people mocked. And God was faithful and God was true. And Noah preached and Noah built. And the ark rose and the judgment of God came nearer and nearer. And people mocked and people laughed. And Noah built and Noah preached. And the judgment of God came nearer. But there came a day when God put him in the ark, shut the door, let him sit there for a few days and sent rain and washed the whole world clean. God was not intimidated by sin. Do you remember the story of Sodom? Do you remember God stopping by Abraham's house? And he stops by to say, Abraham, you're my friend. I'm not going to do this without telling you. Abraham, I'm on my way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know anybody that lives there? Abraham. Oh, yes, he did know somebody that lived there. He says the stench the stench of the sin of this city has come up in the nostrils of God. And I've come down to see if it's really as bad as it appears. And then I see Abraham as he gets in front, as he gets in front of that angelic-like being. And he says, oh, Lord, now, you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, would you? And then you remember that, that phenomenal story of Abraham coming back again and again to say, Lord, if they're this many, Lord, if they're, if they're just this many, Lord, if they're only this, oh, Lord, please don't be angry with me, if they're only ten. And then we have this incredible statement. God says that as bad as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, listen, as bad as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, I won't destroy those cities if there are 10 righteous people there. That is incredible. 
the story doesn't end there. The angels go. You remember the hideous scene? The men of the city try to get them and they have to be smitten blind and the angels grab a hold of Lot. And if you read that story carefully, as the morning hours dawn, they say, do you have any other family? He says, yes. They say, go get them. God is going to destroy this city. So he goes and pleads and cries and begs, but it's too long. Lot is, it, it, it's too late. Lot is fooled around too long in Sodom. And they think he's nuts. And he comes back and he's moaning and groaning and wringing his hands. And finally the angel gets a hold of him and says, get out of here. We can't do anything until you're gone. But up on the hill, there's a man. <laughs> there's a man. There's Abraham. And he's up there standing in the place where he met the Lord. <laughs> oh, I see in my mind's eye a very real picture of a man literally standing and holding back the judgment, the just judgment of an eternal God and saying, Lord, you can't till Lot's out. And God responds through his, his angels by saying, Lot, get out, we can't until you're out. God was looking for a man. God was looking for a man. I say to you again, when? When in biblical record has God ever been intimidated by sin? No, his concern about sin has been that he knows what sin does to you and does to me. If you remember the last verse of this chapter said, God turned their own way upon them. The worst thing that could ever happen to a sinful man is to get his own way. God was looking for a man to stand in the gap he moved out of compassion. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, the Lord God of their fathers sent them, sent to them by his messengers, rising the time and sending them, because he had compassion on the people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his word and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. I would suggest to you tonight that God has always looked for a man. In the days of the reconstruction of Israel after the 70 years of captivity, God found a man in Nehemiah. In the days of the early church, God found men in the 12 apostles and the early converts and finally in the apostle Paul. And the bottom line was simply God was looking for somebody to step into the moment of need. Now apparently... Apparently, there are two or three things that we ought to get about this, get out of this. The first is that when, when sin begins to abound, judgment begins to draw near. When sin abounds and judgment draws near, God goes into action looking for someone to stem the tide. God goes into action looking for someone through whom he can pour his grace. That's where grace comes in. For some unknown reason, God from all eternity chose to work within the context of human cooperation. And God has so designed it that he works through people like you and me. He pours himself through. So we see the Lord in some amazing places doing some amazing things. I was reading in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 where the Laodicean church is described. And there's not one good thing said about that church, not one solitary thing. And yet when God gets done with all that litany of accusations, you're deceived, you're poor, you're wretched, you're naked, you're blind. When he gets done with all of that, he says, but I'm standing at the door and knocking. 
How many times have we quoted that not knowing where the context was? I've grown up with people looking at churches like the United Methodists and saying, oh, they've grieved God away. God's gone. I have preached myself from this same book of Ezekiel on the withdrawing of the Spirit. And there certainly is a sense in which God is grieved out of the midst of the people. But I want you to know that while you can grieve him out of your life, while you can grieve him out of your church, while you can grieve him out of your movement, you can't grieve him away from the door. That's grace. That's where God's grace comes to act upon us. It's not that God can't control sin. Since when has he been intimidated by sin? Never. God is simply looking for a channel through which he can pour himself. All of a sudden I begin to see, Lord, Lord, I think the answer to my prayer has come. I think the answer to my cry for my children has come. The most important person the most important person in our relationship, that is mine and my children's, the most important person in that relationship is me. The most important person is the one whom God has set over them as their father, the one that he's given a concern to, the one he allowed to bring those children into the world. God has given me a place of responsibility and he wants to make me the man to stand in the gaps of their life. My vision is broadened because I've seen the church I pastor. I've been at that same church almost 20 years. I've watched the little kids become big kids. I dedicated them when they were babies, and now I'm getting ready to marry some that I dedicated as babies. And life moves so quickly on. And yet I realize those children, those young people are a product of my ministry. It's been my preaching Sunday after Sunday. It's been my preaching week in, week out that has affected their lives, that has given them a concept of God. I'm afraid that in altogether too many settings, we've allowed our concept of God to be that he's an angry, sober God who's withdrawn to certain distance and We've got to kind of do a lot of extraordinary things to get his attention. We've got to plead, oh God, please come back. We've done a lot of bad stuff, but Lord, would you please come back? Would you please have mercy on us? Unless I'm badly perverting and twisting scripture, I see a God who in the midst of judgment, in the midst of sin, in the midst of vice, in the midst of immorality, walks up and down the corridors of our world, walks up and down the corridors of our church looking for somebody that he can make himself strong to and through. Somebody that can pour his grace through. I confess to you that I, I find myself I find myself struggling just a bit because I've listened as others have talked of battle and struggle and grief and sorrow. But I want to tell you something tonight. I know some places where God is working. I know some places where God is doing some things. I know some places where God is helping. I know some places where God is beginning to make himself felt, to show himself strong. Brother Leonard Sankey was at our church just a month ago. 
We began revival services on Tuesday night and he preached a pungent message on change. Not just surging, but change. One of the statements that stuck so vividly in my mind was anything you're willing to tolerate, you'll never change. God had been talking to my heart about that, Brother Sankey. God had been talking to my heart about that. He was saying to me, son, I want you to see a pattern in your life. There's a surge for revival and a desurge afterwards. And there's a surge when there's a need. And there's a surge when somebody's sick. And there's a surge when somebody dies. And there's a surge when somebody backslides. But son, I want to raise you to a new level of life. And I want you to live there. I want you to walk there. I want you to stay there. I want you to operate on that level as God confronted me that night I knew there was only one thing to do and that was to tell the people exactly what the Lord had been telling me but I found in my amazement that God had been telling several others in our church exactly the same thing and that night one after another we got to our feet to say God has been challenging my heart to move to a new level spiritually to move up spiritually and by the time that service was done 25 people were at the altar every young person in the church was at the altar I wasn't the end. <laughs> We're not a church where we have those good services where we don't have preaching all the time. I happen to believe that preaching is God's chosen way to get his word across. So we don't put a premium on not having preaching. But neither do we get so full of ourselves that we think God doesn't ever want to set aside preaching. And so in the course of that week, we found ourselves on three different nights having God just moving in, breaking us up. Some people getting really sanctified, getting some issues really settled. Some backslidden families getting reclaimed. Some people who hadn't been a Christian in years getting their feet down and moving in God's direction. <laughs> say, well, that's fine, preacher. That was a surge in revival. <laughs> I know it was, but the next Sunday night it was... It was that same way again. This last Sunday night, it was the same way again. What in the world is God trying to do? Were those all brand new people? No, several of them were some repeat. But what God is doing, we've got a group of young married couples that is the tomorrow of our church and God is working on them and God is dealing with them and God is settling some issues in their life and they're digging and they're scratching and they're moving in God's direction. One young man was able to stand and say, at five o'clock in the morning, I've been struggling about holiness, but at five o'clock in the morning, God showed me the last hurdle in my life and he sanctified me holy. <laughs> I'm afraid that we've let our sense of doom and gloom overwhelm us until our, our vision has become horizontal instead of vertical. I'm afraid we've let our eschatology of things waxing worse and worse and deceivers deceiving and being deceived. We've let that crowd in on us until it's developed the fortress mentality. We kind of want to hold on to what we have and build the walls a little higher and put a new lock on the gate. Friend, I want to tell you something. I listened to Larry Smith at our ministerial and he did something to my heart. He did some things he talked about in Methodism. I went home to pick up Francis Asbury's journal and began to read it. And I read the story of the early Methodists in America. I began to read there about the rigging loft and read about 200 Methodists. And in 15 or so years, three quarters of a million Methodists. No, 
No, it wasn't the same kind of revival you had up there when Jonathan Edwards was preaching sins in the hands of an angry God. But it was the kind of revival where men rode horses to death, planting churches, where they traveled circuits and established societies and nurtured believers and the church began to grow. And Methodist church shaped the history of the United States of America because God found some men who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge. <laughs> We can stand here all night and talk in generalities. We can stand here all night and go around about our theories. We can argue about eschatology till we're blue in the face. But when everything is said and done, God is looking for some people, some people he can pour his grace through. <laughs> I hope I don't sound presumptuous to you tonight, but there's been a call echoing in the corridors of my soul to say, oh God, let me be one of those men. Let me be one for my kids. Let me be one for my church. Let me be one for my students, Lord. Let me be one of those men. <laughs> the wall is big. The holes are many. The gaps are enormous. But I want you to know tonight God is doing a work. I listened to our brother talk here a little bit earlier this evening. I don't know what his theological persuasion is, but I know that the AC people by and large are Calvinistic. But there was something in that man's message that rang a bell in my heart. I've been listening and I've heard some incredible things. I was reading here a while back about some, about some charismatic assembly of God people. And they said, all of this emotional display has left us empty and void. We've got to find something of reality. And in my heart, I say, hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, Lord, would you visit those people? I found myself praying for the, for the Baptist church around the corner from me. I got to know the pastor. They've got an enormous mortgage. They've got problems on every side. The church has split two or three times recently, and they can't even pay on the mortgage. I talked to that pastor, and he, he was pouring out all of his woes and all of his struggles. But I sensed as I talked to him that it was moving him in God's direction. You say, well, he believes in eternal security. He believes in sinning religion. He may well do that, but I want you to know the surest cure for eternal security and sinning religion is God coming down and meeting hearts and touching souls. I wonder tonight if God could help the IH convention in Dayton, Ohio to catch a glimpse of God stopping the holes in the dike because he found some people. I wonder if he could touch our hearts until we could pray, oh God, visit the Southern Baptist Convention this summer. Say, well, they're whirly and they're this and they're that. I know that, but friend, I want you to know the cure for all of those problems is God coming. The cure for all of those needs is God coming. <laughs> The job is too big for us. The job is too big for your little church and my little church. But I want you to know there's a God in heaven who's walking the roads of this world and stalking the corners of our life and he's looking for some people. <laughs> has God ever changed things before? He sure has. <laughs> I grew up in a home where my father was a church history teacher and I count that a number one blessing because I grew up on the history of the church and I remember my dad telling me one time, I remember being so moved, he got tears in his eyes as he told how there across the English Channel, France had come to the brink and fallen over into revolution. The guillotine was the entertainment of the day. Bleachers were set up and the nobility was hauled in and they laugh and cheer and jeer about how he wiggled or how he kicked as his head rolled across the English Channel. English society had gone the same way. But I want you to know that God reached up in a high pulpit. I mean a high pulpit. One of you fall out of, you break your neck. 
and he got a little fella's hair was way too long and his robes were kind of weird and his education was too high to ever think about preaching to minors and people in the low down gutters of life and yet somehow in a long course of events God led him to America and back and warmed his heart at Aldersgate Street and God began to help him he got big enough to walk out of the church big enough to preach off his father's tombstone and big enough to preach in the streets and big enough to fight brick bats and I want you to know England was turned away from the revolution that, <laughs> that France experienced <laughs> it was the poet laureate of England Southie that said it was Wesley it was Wesley and Methodist that turned the course of English history. Friend, I want you to know today, these are not times for building high walls and watchtowers and training new people for the guards, putting a couple of new locks on the, day, the gate. This is a time for getting on our knees and our faces. If you don't have anything else to pray for, pray for your own youngins, pray for your own family, pray for your own church. But I sense God moving among us. <laughs> I said, and look at, stand and look at that class of 20 young people there at God's Bible School introduction to homiletics and they don't all have the outlining process straight yet and they haven't all figured out how in the world to take my test and a whole bunch of other things. But there have been times when God's come on my heart and I find a reverberation in the souls of those young men. <laughs> I told Brother England, the fire's begun to burn in my heart again. <laughs> The fire's begun to burn in my heart. God wants to do something. It will put ourselves in the place where he can do something. <laughs> During that revival that we had a month or so ago, I could, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best meeting I've ever been in a local church. And there we had a couple of young fellows who were preaching. Chris Cravens was down from Michigan to sing for us. And Mark Sank is the assistant pastor at our church. And I thought, oh God, thank you for coming and meeting us and helping us in this day, in our hour, so these young men can see that God still wants to help us. <laughs> I want to tell you tonight, God's not intimidated by sin. The result of that is always wrath and God's wrath will always conquer sin. Be you well assured of that. God's in control and he always will be in control and there'll never be enough sin to intimidate God. When sin gets out of hand, God's just gonna wipe the slate clean and burn the world up and start over. He'll always rule sin. He'll always rule sin. You're the one that's scared of sin, not God. God's concern is for us. He knows what sin does. Oh, friend, when there's a vacuum of leadership, there's always a growth of leadership, a growth of subterranean leadership that springs up to fill that vacuum. And the devil has, has, has pushed his forces right into the vacuum left by the church. Back there when the fundamentalists and the liberals divided, we went our ways and separated ourselves. We shut ourselves off from the world. And the devil's moved in in big time fashion. By the process of attrition, as the old leaders and the old warriors have fallen by the wayside, he's come to dominate in some places. But I want you to know God has not left himself without a witness, and God's not let himself be caught off guard. I want you to know back there before the fall ever came about, God had a plan in place, a plan in motion. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world before the devil ever deceived Eve, before Eve ever got at him, before the first sin was ever committed. God had a plan in place. And I want you to know tonight, if God can find a man, if God can find some people, if God can find a heart that's willing and open and ready, he's got a plan in place now.
Your question may be, well, are you saying that God can save America? <laughs> if he can save England, why couldn't he save America? Unless you write it off. I'm fully convinced that God has not left himself without a witness in the 20th century. If you look to Eastern Europe, if you look there at the rubble that was the Soviet Empire, if you look there at the rubble of atheism, if you look there at the source of mocking and jeering and, and taunts from outer space, there's no God out here. You see the, you see the bastions of that stronghold falling into rubble. I know there's some people around and say, well, it's not over. That thing's going to rise again and on and on and on. I want you to know, friend, laying there in the rubble of the Berlin Wall is a testimony to the overcoming sufficiency of the God we serve. He just reminds us that there isn't any power too strong and there isn't any wall too high and there isn't any valley too deep and there isn't any people too far gone if we'll call on him. I would go back to Josiah again when he found out that judgment was so imminent. He began to seek God with everything that was in him. He began to cry unto God. They had a Passover like there had never been a Passover before. And God was impressed. And God rolled back judgment. He said, you'll be dead and gone before it ever comes. And I confess to you that my prayer has been and is and will be, oh God, not on my watch, not in our day, not in this hour. Lord, not while I have responsibility. I'm afraid that when the bottom line is reached, we need to realize that our destiny does not lie in the hands of Bill Clinton and Congress. Our destiny does not lie in the hands of world bankers. Our destiny does not lie in the hands of an ungodly electorate. Our, our, our destiny lies in the hands of, whether, of ourselves, whether we will seek God with all of our hearts or not. Our destiny is not decided by a God who's distant and angry and austere. No, friend, if we'll start to look around, we'll find him. <laughs> He'll slip up beside where you are. He'll ask you to set your alarm clock a little. He'll call you to fast and pray. <laughs> That's right, he will. He'll call you to seek his faith. He'll call you to cut back on overtime. He'll call you young men to be servants of God and preachers of the gospel if you let him. No, no, our destiny lies in our own hands. I would remind you again of the verse that's already been said to us several times tonight. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And I'm just simple enough to believe that tonight. I want to say something to some different groups of this congregation this evening and I'm going to quit. I want to say to you that are old, in our society, if you're not young and if you're not beautiful and if you're not made right and if you're not strong, you're a second-class citizen, whatever the civil rights people say. Many times you're treated like that. But I want you to know that if your hair is gray and your muscle tone is not what it was and your arthritis is killing you and you can't sleep at night and you can't stay awake in the day, I want you to know you haven't moved out of the life of productivity as far as God is concerned. We've got a lady in our church. I wish she was here tonight. I called her. And I said, if you don't come, I want you to at least pray for me. <laughs> and she promised that she would be. But you know, that lady is in her 80s. But we started a ladies' prayer meeting. 
and she's taking charge of that. And I wish you could. She's not telling us about 40 years ago. She's not testifying about bygone days. She's testifying about the here and now. She's testifying in the present tense. There's a life, there's a light, there's a brightness in her life that does something to my soul. If there's anybody in this world I'd like to have for praying for me, it's Mabel Riley. I want you to know that if you're a person in that classification, there's one thing you can do and do well, and that is hold on to God. Did you know the young people coming after you need you to pray for them? Did you know your preacher needs you to pray for them? I read about a preacher, I believe it was John Henry Jowett, that went to a big city church. He was a highly acclaimed young man, but he wasn't doing very well. And one day one of the official members came and said, sir, you're not doing so well. But he said, I'll tell you what, there are a group of us that have set ourselves to pray for you. And we're going to pray every single day for you. They did, and he preached like a bishop and became one of the leaders in that movement because somebody prayed for him. I want to say something to you moms and dads. I know what it's like to have a family. I know what it's like to stretch the dollars to make ends meet. I know what it's like to have kids that their teeth don't come in straight and kids that fall and break an arm and kids that do this and kids that do that. I know what it's like to pay, uh, pay tuition to send them to Christian day school. I know all of that. But I want to tell you something, moms and dads. You're the workhorses of our movement. You're the workhorses. You're the people carrying the loads. You're the people carrying the burdens. I just want to challenge you to find a place to keep God first in your life, to keep the fire burning on the altar of your soul. Don't you come to church Sunday after Sunday all sapped out and drained out and dead and dry and need somebody to pump you up. You find a place somewhere till God touches your heart. You work better. You'll serve better. You'll be a better husband. You'll be a better father. Don't you give up. We need you. I want to talk to you young people tonight. We've heard about declining enrollments in Bible colleges. But friend, I want to tell you tonight, God's never been impressed by numbers and he's not tonight. It was Gideon's army that said it's way too big. I can't do anything with that crowd. Too many of you brag and take all the glory to yourself. God's not nearly as worried about the enrollment and attendance in our Bible colleges as we are, especially if we have to pay the bills. But the bottom line is simply this. If we can have the glory of God upon the students of our Bible colleges, we won't have to worry about students either. If God can come and meet us, we've gotten so worried about degrees and status. We've got so worried about being approved by somebody in Chicago or somebody in Washington, D.C. that we've forgotten our real purpose. Our real purpose is to be men and women of God and to train men and women of God. If we ever, if we ever leave that, we ought to go under. We ought to go under. <laughs> I got a little beside myself there. Probably shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> but it's still true. It's true whether I should have said it or not. Young people, I want to tell you tonight, God, God will walk down the road of your life. He'll stop by where you live. You get ready to go off and study law and study medicine and study some other things. God needs some of those people, but he doesn't need near as many of those folks as he's got. If you listen to the voice of God in your soul, and mom and dad, you can get in on this too. If you listen to the voice of God in your soul, he'll call you. He'll call you to do his work. He'll call you to take his way. I can't for the life of me fathom how God's filling law courts and filling doctor's positions while they're church after church after church after church that doesn't have a pastor. <laughs> I say it kindly. 
I say it kindly, but it's a shame. It's a crying shame. It's a crying shame when the world gets the best and brightest of our young people. It's a crying shame. It's a crying shame. Mom and dad, it's a crying shame if you think your son is too bright and too talented to go God's way. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. God needs our best. God needs our brightest. God needs our best prospects. God's looking for a man. If he can have some men, he'll do some things for us. I say to you young people, you give God your heart. <laughs> you give God your heart. You heed the call. You listen when he taps on your heart's door. He'll call you to be one of those men before you're ever, before you're ever old enough to have gray hair, before you're ever old enough to have taken all the hits that some of these old timers have taken. God can teach you the secret of waiting in his presence and getting your cup full and your heart hot and preaching like heaven is real and hell is real and people are special to God. God is looking for a man. Our destiny lies in our own hands, folks. God is looking for a man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. And my heart tonight says, Lord, let me be one of those people. <laughs> let me be one of those people. <laughs> let me be one of those people. Oh, I may not fill a big hole in the hedge. But Lord, let me be one of those people. Let me get my hand in the dike. Let me be a hedge maker and a gap filler somewhere. Oh, Lord, make the AIDS convention hedge makers and gap fillers. Oh, oh God, make us hedge makers and gap fillers. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. Keep